Friends, if you have your Bible, please turn with me in them to 1 Timothy chapter 4, uh, reading verses 6 to 10. Uh, this morning, we're continuing our series in 1 Timothy called Living as God's Household. And the reason we spent 10 weeks in this series last fall and the reason we're spending 10 more weeks uh, this winter is because Apostle Paul wrote this letter with the aim to teach Timothy and the aim to teach us, every Christian reader who's receiving his letter today, uh, how we ought to behave in God's household, how we ought to conduct ourselves in the family of faith, how we are to be brothers and sisters in the spiritual family. Uh, in today's passage, Paul is teaching us and encouraging us, instructing us how we are to be a good servant of Jesus Christ. And so if you are able, I invite you to stand with me as your act of worship for the reading and the receiving of God's word as we show reverence as we hear and receive from him. First Timothy chapter four, reading verses six to 10. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the savior of all people, especially of those who believe. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Please be seated and join me once again in prayer. Lord, we ask for your help at this time for coming to 1 Timothy is not the same as coming to um, any other writing that we may pick up and read. Uh, this is your word. And it requires your spirit to illuminate our hearts and grant us understanding and conviction that we might live according to these words. For man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So we receive it with thanksgiving. We pray that you would work its truths into our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I remember when I began seminary on the first day of orientation, we received a welcome packet. And in that packet, there was a booklet um, entitled The Religious Life of Theological Students by a man named B.B. Warfield, Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield. It's a great name. And in this uh, little address, uh, this booklet, Professor Warfield uh, had addressed the students at Princeton Seminary in 1911. And so it was recorded to us, it was recorded for us, it was given to us in this orientation packet. Packet. And I remember uh, that afternoon returning to my dorm room and picking it up and not being able to put it down. I read it in one sitting and at the end of it, I opened it and on the inside cover, I drew a little asterisk and wrote a note to myself. I said, Andrew, make sure you read this at the beginning of every semester until you graduate. And the reason that I was so struck, uh, so inspired that this address had uh, such a, a powerful, impactful meaning uh, was because of the, the thesis of, of it. And this is what Warfield writes. He, he writes this, and I found the word so striking. He says, a minister must be learned on pain of being utterly incompetent for his work. But before and above being learned, a minister must be godly. And essentially what he was saying is uh, that a minister, a good servant of Jesus, need not only be learned, to know the doctrines, to know scripture, to know the truth, but he must be godly. Godly in character, godly in living rightly before 
the Lord. You see, both are priorities in the Christian life. You see, what B.B. Warfield writes here are not just words for those training in theology or for those preparing for ministry. It's true for all Christians. Anybody who calls himself a disciple and follower of Christ, who claims Jesus is Lord and Jesus is master, you must hold forth to both good doctrine and godliness, right knowledge of God, right living before God. You see, what Warfield wrote in 1911 wasn't his own invention. It wasn't of his own making. He was simply taking the words Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 4 and retranslating them. Because what's happening in our passage today is Paul is writing to Timothy, and he's encouraging Timothy in his pastoral ministry. And he writes that a good servant of Jesus is one who is devoted to learnedness, devoted to the good doctrine, devoted to Christian teaching, devoted to growing in the faith and in the word but also one disciplined in the pursuit of godliness, living a godly life before the Lord. And so we see it right there in verses six and seven, where Paul describes a good servant. And he says, a good servant is one being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine first. And second, training yourself for godliness. In fact, this is Paul's theme in this chapter, so that when he finishes first. Timothy chapter four, he concludes, he summarizes his point again at the end in verse 16, where he says, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Meaning he's saying, you need to keep a close watch on your conduct and your content to make sure that you're living rightly, but you're also knowing rightly. Keep a close eye, careful attention, steadfast on not only what you know and believe, but how you are living. Friends, are you living as a good servant of Jesus? How is it that you might finish your race and at the end hear the long coveted words from the master himself, well done, good and faithful servant? What does it mean to be a good servant of Jesus Christ? As we look at our text, we'll learn one, it requires devotion to the Christian faith, to learning good and sound doctrine. And two, discipline in our pursuit of godliness. So let's begin. Verse six, Paul writes this. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Now that phrase there translated as being trained, that's a good translation. Uh, But here I actually prefer the NIV's translation. Because the NIV reads like this, it says, nourished on the truths of the faith and of the good teaching that you have followed. You must be nourished. Now, when you think of nourishment, you think of growth, you think of uh, strength, you think of health, you eat what nourishes you. And when somebody isn't growing properly, when they're not getting strong, uh, they're malnourished, they're undernourished. So Paul begins by claiming a good servant is one who grows strong and healthy because they're committed to the right diet. They're feasting and they're dining on the right thing. They're receiving the right nutrients. I mean, have you ever seen a parent with a child that is particularly tall or big? Uh, Maybe a nicer way to put it is sturdy. And what's particularly interesting is when you look at the parents and they're of average size, and then you look at their child, and they're ginormous. And you think, what in the world happened here? So for example, in my family, uh, among all of the male cousins, uh, the average height among us is about 5'8". 
And, you know, I'm about six feet and you may think, oh, are, are, are you the, you know, outlier? No, I have a cousin living on the West Coast who is six foot four inches. The guy looks exaggerated. He looks like he's been stretched out. And so whenever we see him at these family reunions every so every few years, we're again surprised at how big and tall he is. And so when we're gathered around the dinner table, we always turn to his uncle and aunt and we say, I don't get it. What did you feed him? What did you give him to eat? How did he get so big? You see, we ask that question because we all know what one eats, what one is fed, what one is nourished by. That correlates to size and to stature. Paul is saying that if you want to be a good, strong, healthy, robust, sturdy servant of Jesus, you must be properly fed and properly nourished. On what? On the words of the faith and of good doctrine. Spiritual maturity, spiritual health is the result, a direct result of of a rich spiritual diet. On the other hand, if all you are eating is composed of spiritual junk food, then you will grow malnourished. Paul gives an example of that in verse 7, where he says, have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Uh, Earlier in chapter 1, he called these myths and endless genealogies. And his point here was that this is unsound teaching. This is false doctrine. These are truths that people devoted themselves to that had nothing to do with the Bible. They were unbiblical. You see, Paul is saying, if you want to grow as a good servant, you need to eat the right things. And what are the right things? The right things are the truth of the Bible. Doctrines. Now, here's what's interesting. If you look at verse 6, Paul doesn't say, if you want to grow and you want to be nourished, you want to be trained, devote yourself to the Bible or to Scripture or to the Word of God. He actually says the words of the faith and of the good doctrine. And it's a really interesting way of putting it. Now, why did he say that? Well, obviously, good and sound doctrine comes from the Bible. It's based on scripture. It's in accord with the word of God. But Paul here is making a distinction because he's saying, some of you think that merely knowing the Bible, knowing facts and stories in the Bible would lead to maturity. And he's saying, it's not enough to know simply elementary facts and stories. You need to know the articulation of Christian faith, the doctrines of what we believe. If you want to know Jesus rightly and deeply and intimately and personally, you need to know something deep about him, not merely settling for Sunday school answers and Bible trivia responses. So for example, if someone were to ask you, what is it that you love about your spouse? Or if you're not married, what is it that you admire most about your closest, dearest, best friend? Like how you respond reveals the depth of your relationship with that person. It's going to either reveal a deep familiarity and intimacy with them or that you have merely a superficial surface level knowledge. The same is true of Christ. If you were to ask a good servant of Jesus, what is it that you love about the Savior? How you respond, how you answer makes a world of a difference. Can you imagine someone who says, I love Jesus so much with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength. What do you love about Jesus? I love that Jesus' birthday is December 25th. I love that his hometown, he was born in Bethlehem, but grew up in Nazareth. I love that his mother is Mary. I love how he did many miracles and he taught many good things. You would wonder at a response like that, whether that person really knows and loves Jesus at all. 
And yet, sometimes those who confess to love Jesus with all their hearts settle for a knowledge of him that sounds not very different than this answer. We know so little of our Savior. But those who are good servants of Jesus, trained, built up, nourished in the words of faith and of doctrine, are able to speak from so much of a deeper, true doctrinal point. It doesn't mean you need to be fancy with your language, but say, I know Jesus and I love Jesus how he who was God took on flesh and condescended to live among us, perfect God and perfect man, the one mediator between God and man. Christ Jesus, who lived the life that his righteousness would be imputed to me because I couldn't live a perfect life. I love Jesus who died for my sins. He didn't die as an example of how much he loved us, but he died because he bore the wrath of God in my place. You see, a good servant of Jesus knows his Savior because he knows his Savior. His love for his Savior can be deep and genuine and profound. So let me ask you, are you being trained, nourished in the words of faith and of the good doctrine? Are you ensuring that in your life there is a good, steady diet of the truth of God that you might be built up and maturing? Do you devote yourself to the study of God's word, to its regular reading, meditation, reflection, praying over it, thinking about it, memorizing it, discussing it? Or are you one whose sustenance is drawn from coming to church once on Sunday, listening to man preach for 30, 35 minutes, and then going on your merry way? Dear friends, that's like somebody who goes to the buffet once a week and thinks that they will be well-nourished. You know, so many times Christians lament that they've lost what once was great all and passion and zeal. Oh, when I was in college, I sought after the Lord so much. When I was in youth group, I was filled with such fire for the Lord. People share with me prayer requests asking, I want to find my first love again. I want to give my life for God. Perhaps this describes you. I don't question your sincerity. And yet those who say such things, the follow-up question is, well, are you willing to put in the effort and the work and the discipline that's required for you to be well-nourished and fed? Let me just say two things on this matter. First, where did Timothy's training begin? Like, how did Timothy himself get to be the good servant of Christ that he was? And the answer, surprisingly, is not because he hung out with Apostle Paul. He was discipled by Paul. The answer actually began in the home, in his family. How was Paul well-trained? We read in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, Paul writes these words. He says, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, the faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois, and your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you as well. How did Timothy get started in being nourished in God's word? He had a loving grandmother and mother who taught him the word. Paul goes on to say in 2 Timothy 3, but as for you, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, 
and how from childhood you, were, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And so whether you are parents, soon to be parents, or one day will be parents, there's a word here for you. If you want your child to be a good servant of Jesus Christ, don't look for the church that offers the best children's ministry so that you might outsource their discipleship so that others might train your child in the way of the Lord, in the words of faith and in good doctrine. Don't outsource your discipleship. Seize the responsibility yourself. Start in the home. Train your children up in the truths of our holy religion. Commentator and pastor Phil Riken writes these words. He says, a good upbringing is worth years of seminary. It prepares the sons and daughters of the church to become good servants in every walk of life. It will make them good neighbors, citizens, artists, professionals, laborers, school teachers, parents, missionaries, and ministers. Dear parents, don't underestimate what can be done in the home. Dear young friends, catch this vision. As you think about starting a family, make this a priority. Now, for those, though, who are adults speaking to you, maybe you didn't grow up in a home where this was available. Maybe you didn't grow up in a home where your parents were Christian. Maybe you didn't grow up Christian at all. Maybe your parents weren't able to communicate with you and there was a language barrier. And so you lament the fact that this wasn't true for you. But this may not have taken place in your childhood home, but it can take place in the household of God today. Like it can take place in this spiritual family where we can help each other be trained and nourished and fed on the word. Consider Acts 18. What was happening in Acts 18? Apollos was ministered to, discipled by this ministry-minded couple, a wife and husband duo, Priscilla and Aquila, who took him in and trained him. Consider what happened in the early church in Acts chapter 2 when the early believers were gathering together. What were they doing? In their fellowship, what were they doing? They weren't going to cafes and bars and karaoke. They were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. Consider the Christians in Colossae who let the word of Christ dwell in them. What were they doing? They were teaching and admonishing one another. You see, the church as a spiritual family is the perfect setting for us to be trained in the words of faith, for us to grow in our faith and our understanding and our doctrine, not just by the pastors and the elders who stand up here behind a pulpit and speak these things into your life. It happens by the ministry of one another. What's taking place in your CGs? What's taking place in your flocks? What's taking place among your friend groups? Keeping each other accountable. Coming to church on Sundays. Yes, that's a start. Listening to the sermon. Reflecting on it. Applying it. But also meeting outside of the Sunday time to read and study the scriptures together to talk about it. How many times in your fellowship with one another Do you talk about the things of the Lord? Texting memes, texting jokes, or also texting edifying podcasts that you've recently heard. Reading and recommending books, encouraging one another to attend seminars, lessons, book clubs. You see, the church should be the household in which we help each other become good servants of the Lord Jesus, rightly knowing learning these deep truths of our faith. Dear friends, how are you putting these things before you? Are you putting healthy spiritual food that you could feast and diet on?
That's the first thing. If you want to be a good servant of Jesus, you must be devoted to learning these truths. And the second thing is to be disciplined in the pursuit of godliness. Paul goes on to write this in verses 7 and 8. He says, rather train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. And what is godliness? Well, godliness is rightly living out the truths of God in your life. Godliness is simply putting into practice the words of faith and the good doctrine that you know. Godliness is simply your actions being aligned to your beliefs about God. And in one sense, this whole letter of 1 Timothy is an exhortation to be godly in God's household. That, that, that Greek word godliness, there's only 15 occurrences of it in the entire New Testament. Nine of them are found in 1 Timothy. Why? Because Paul's exhortation is for you to pursue godliness. It's what God desires of us. But here's the thing, it's so not natural to us. Which is why then Paul says you must train yourself for it. Exert yourself, work for it, put in effort. Be willing to expend some spiritual sweat. The only way you will become godly and pursue godliness is if you're willing to put in the grind. You know, this past week, I saw a movie on Netflix that I've been making my way through, watching about 10, 15 minutes uh, Every day, it's called Big George Foreman. It's a movie about, uh, you know, the inventor of the George Foreman grill. Um, no, the, the heavyweight boxing champion of the world. Um, and, you know, there's, it, the, the way the movie starts, it's a, it's a biographical sports drama. Uh, and, you know, George Foreman as a little kid, he's, he's the big kid. He's always involved in fights. But what's interesting is uh, the first time he steps into the ring, you think he would just be able to dominate but he steps into the ring for the first time and he is just laid out. He's knocked out. Why? Because despite his natural size, despite all of his experience in fighting, when he entered the ring without any training, without any discipline, without exerting himself, committing and putting the work, I mean, he was no good. He got laid out. And then the movie goes on to show that after one year of discipline and going through the grind and putting in the sweat. I don't know if you know this, George Foreman won the 1968 Olympics. He won the gold medal after just one year of boxing. There's a lesson here for us. Godliness isn't something you attain overnight. Godliness isn't just something you decide. Godly, godliness requires commitment and perseverance. It requires discipline. It requires training. The Bible says, yes, the Holy Spirit empowers you. Second, uh, Second Peter Chapter 1, verse 3 says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. God has supplied the power for you, but you are to take that power and to exercise it out in your life, to train yourself for this. Dear friends, are you willing to train yourself to pursue godliness? Are you willing to prioritize the things that need to be prioritized for you to be godly? Are you willing to forsake the things that need to be forsaken to be godly? We all know that good things in life require your work. You want a good career, you have to work hard in school, in your internship, and in your workplaces. You want a good marriage, you have to work hard at communication and conflict resolution. You want a good physique, you have to work hard at keeping a diet and being faithful to exercise. We know good things require work. And the same is true of godliness. No pain, no gain is what they say. Yet Paul is saying it's worth it. 
He goes on to remind Timothy in verse 8, for while bodily training is of some value, he's appealing to the gym rats. He's appealing to those who know and love what it means to work out and break a sweat. He says, that is of some value. It's important. It's good. But godliness is a value in every way. Why? Because it holds forth a promise for the present life and for the life to come. And he was speaking to those in the ancient audience who were very familiar with the importance of athletics and working out because at the time, the Olympic Games didn't exist, but something called the Isthmian Games existed. And so they knew people who um, celebrated, right? The, the athleticism was celebrated in these games where there were runners who ran races. And he knew that for them, there were people who trained their whole lives to get a chance to win, and they would beat their bodies and they would discipline themselves and they'd go run the race, but there's no guarantee that they won. There was only the probability, the chance that they might win. And even those who won, what did they receive? They received a perishable wreath that you would wear one day and the next day it would fade and pass. And Paul is saying, you know, there are things, yeah, sure, that you consider worthy of striving after and working hard for? What are those things in your life? Is it being successful? Is it being well-known? Is it being liked? Being rich? Being fit? Being beautiful? Being respected? All, all these kinds of things. But they will fade and they will pass. They're nothing but perishable wreaths. Paul is saying, don't devote yourself to that. Don't you vote yourself to godliness because that's going to yield a fruit in the present life and in the life to come. That in pursuing after godliness, we come to know God, to be more and more like him, to know his heart, to represent God, to give witness to him, to walk in the pleasure of knowing that my life pleases the Lord. That in the life to come, as I cross over into everlasting life, I will receive the eternal crown of glory, the imperishable wreath. One day I will stand before the Father, finally and fully glorified, radiating in the perfect conformity to the image of Jesus. Paul says, that's worth it. That's a value in every way, the thing that's going to cross over. So he exhorts us, if you want to be a good servant of Jesus, devote yourself to know him and discipline yourself to be like him. Because everything else you invest in the body you are working hard to achieve, the muscles you're working hard to amass, the financial security that you're working to attain, the material wealth that you have in your possession, the glory of your name, the respect of your reputation, the list of accolades and accomplishments you have, all those things will expire in this life that will be left behind on this earth. What will transfer over? the devotion to knowing him and the discipline to being like him. For when you enter into eternity with unveiled faces, you will finally know him and be like him. And Paul's saying, that's the greatest investment in your life. You don't believe me, he says in verse 9, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. He's saying, believe me this. Friends, do you believe he is trustworthy? Do you believe this is deserving of full acceptance, that there is no better way to spend our lives than to seek to be a good servant, to know him rightly, and to love him and be like him deeply? And Paul doesn't end here, though. 
Because the issues for us is always going to be this. The issue for you, me is always going to be this. It's always going to be motivation. You don't become a good servant of the Lord simply by mustering up enough determination on your own. And we've all tried harder. We've all tried to be good servants. We've made resolutions. We've done our best. And then what? And then we failed. And yet this isn't a hopeless endeavor. It isn't an impossibility only possible for an exceptional few. No, no, no. Paul gives us access to the power. How might you be a good servant of Jesus? And Paul says the answer lies in the gospel and the gospel alone. Because listen to what he says in verse 10. He says, for to this end, we toil and strive. We work hard at it. Why? Because we have set our hope, because we have our hope set on the living God who is the savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Paul says, the reason I have motivation to hope or to, to toil and to strive and to work hard and beat my body and discipline myself and train for these things, the hope is because I set my eyes, my hope on the living God. It wasn't a power that came from himself. It was a power that came from outside. And he says this, what does Paul know about his God? He says, my God is the savior of all people. Now, to be clear here, Paul doesn't mean that all people are going to be saved. Paul put it, couldn't possibly mean this because it would contradict the rest of what he says in his writings. But what he means is this, that God is the savior of all kinds of people. God offers him uh, himself as the savior of all kinds of people. But the only people who are going to be saved, the only people who are saved are those who believe. That's what he writes here. Those who believe. Paul knows that you're not saved by anything you do for God. You're only saved by what God has done for you. Faith, not works, is the basis of your salvation. Faith in God, not your service to God. Faith in God, not your sacrifice for God. Faith in God, not your discipline, your determination, or your devotion for God. It's faith in him that saves you. The gospel says that you're not saved by the quality or the quantity of your service to God, but what he's done to serve you. Because what is the gospel? The gospel is God's service announcement. It's being declared and blasted on the speakers, not come and hear what God wants from you, but the good news is come and believe what God has done for you. And that's why the gospel is good news. It's the good news that he sent his one and only son into the world, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The gospel is the good news that Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he lowered himself, he humbled himself and took on the form of a servant being obedient to death, yes, even death on a cross, that undeserving sinners like you and me might be forgiven and received and welcomed and made right with him. This salvation is not by your doing. It is not a response to your contributions. It is not a reward for your effort. Salvation is made possible because of the serving sacrificial love of God, the Savior who died for sinners and did for us what we could never do for ourselves. And Paul is saying this. Paul is saying, you know the reason why I toil and I strive? It's because I've received God's saving grace. And I know that he is my Savior. And it's because he is my savior that then I desire to be his servant. Those who think it depends on how good of a servant they are for God to be their savior, have the gospel all twisted and all wrong. Paul says that if you have God as your savior and you receive his salvation, it begins to do a work in your heart where you, your desires, 
in the change, new motivation, new hope. You want to be his servant. If you know God as your Savior, you want to devote yourself to know him. If you have God as your Savior, you want to discipline yourself in godliness to be like him. Friends, you can't muster up enough strength and resolve on your own. You can't summon enough determination and ambition to live as God has called you. Have you tried before? Have you tried to live faithfully and as a good servant to Jesus? If you have, you know you've fallen short quickly and often. You know you've failed again and again and been discouraged and defeated. Instead, what must you do? It's not pick yourself up and try again. It's set your hope on the living God who is your Savior. For when you receive him as Savior, you'll find in you a renewed desire, a new dynamic power at work in you. Desire to be his servant. You desire to know him, and so you commit yourself to this. You desire to be like him, and so you pursue after godliness. This is the kind of disciples we want to see raised here in this household of faith. Those seeking to be good servants of Jesus who want nothing more in their lives than to know him rightly to live before him with all their lives. May this be your prayer as it is mine for you. Let's pray.